0: Just visit the app store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to baysidechapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Don't you just hate hypocrites? I mean, hypocrites make us all look bad, right? You heard the story about the police officer who pulled over a driver and asked for the man's license and registration and the driver said, well, I don't understand, officer. I, I wasn't speeding, was I? And the officer said, no. I didn't run out of the stop sign or anything, did I? He said, no. He said, well, what's, what's the problem? And the officer said, well, uh, I was watching you as you, uh, you, you shook your fist at a lady who was driving slow in the left lane and, and you zipped around her, shaking your fist at her. And the guy said, yeah. He said, well, then uh, another guy caught you off in traffic, and I saw you get all red in the face, and the veins in your neck were standing out as you were screaming at him. Yeah. He said, and then I, I saw how the traffic slowed as we came up to the bridge, and you slammed your hands on your steering wheel. He said, yeah. He said, well, then I saw your bumper sticker that said, Jesus loves you, and so do I, and I thought this car must be stolen. Well, that's one kind of hypocrisy. You know, the kind that professes one thing but lives a very different way. But there's another kind of hypocrisy that's just as bad and maybe even worse because it acts as if it's all about grace but then demands that you live under the law. The first kind of hypocrisy will chalk up to immaturity. It's, you know, somebody who hasn't quite lived into their their faith in Christ yet the other kind of hypocrisy, however, uh, can destroy Christian fellowship and lead people astray and make the death of Christ on the cross meaningless. New Christians are more likely to be guilty of the first kind of hypocrisy, but even longtime Christians can be guilty of the other kind of hypocrisy, call it legalism. And today's passage serves as a warning to us, even some of us who are longtime believers of how easily we can slip into the dangerous hypocrisy of legalism. Uh, Legalism we'll define as attempting to attain righteousness by keeping the law. Attempting to attain righteousness by keeping the law. Now Paul has been very clear from the beginning of his letter that Jesus alone makes us righteous before God. But some have come in behind him in the churches in Galatia and have been Telling the Galatian believers who are new in the faith that, you know, Paul was partly right. Trusting in Jesus is a good start. But now that you trust in Jesus, now you start, you need to start behaving like a Jew. You need to get circumcised, you need to keep kosher, you need to uh, keep the Sabbath and keep the holy days and, and observe the law of Moses if you truly want to be righteous before God. And Paul has said already in Galatians that any version of the gospel that says, once you've trusted Jesus, you need to start keeping the law of Moses? That's a perversion. Those who preach such a gospel, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, Jesus plus anything, should be eternally condemned. Now, in the earlier part of chapter 2, As we saw last week, even Peter, James, and John agreed with Paul and Barnabas and Titus in a meeting they had in Jerusalem that the gospel that Paul was preaching was the correct gospel and that the gospel did not require a Gentile like Titus, for instance, to be, it didn't require him to be uh, circumcised, to to be observant of the Jewish law. They uh, shook hands on it. The apostles gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and sent them off with their blessing to preach that gospel to the Gentiles. Well, that was a visit that took place in Jerusalem, and Barnabas and Paul went back to Antioch, where they were helping to pastor a church there, and Peter decides he's going to go visit the, the church in Antioch and check in and see how things are going. And at first, things uh, seem to be going very well. Um, But then a turn took place that we're going to see here in just a moment that shows us just how easily even Peter could succumb to the temptation of legalism. And if it could happen to Peter, you know, we should be on warning that it could happen very easily to any of us. So consider with me here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, some of the dangers of legalism that Paul unpacks for us. And then he concludes with the truth that helps us keep anchored in the gospel. The first danger of legalism is that it is seductive. Legalism is seductive. Look at verse 11, where it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they... they, they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, in verses 11 through 13 here, Paul is showing us just how seductive legalism can be, sucking in even Peter under its influence. Now remember that Paul had just talked about the visit that he'd had, the good visit he'd had in Jerusalem with Peter and James and John and how they'd all agreed that the gospel did not require Gentiles to observe the law of Moses and how the other apostles had given them the right hand of fellowship and sent them off with their blessing to preach that gospel to the Gentiles. And now Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch and Syria and Peter's visit starts off pretty well. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has had fellowship with Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a special vision in which he basically showed Peter that it's now okay to eat what had previously been considered unclean animals. Peter didn't have to keep kosher anymore because God was sending him to the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and he would there preach the gospel and Cornelius and his family would come to faith in Christ. And so Peter has already received a revelation from God himself that says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. You don't have to keep kosher anymore, Peter. I want you to go to the Gentiles. And and so Peter, having had that previous experience, is entering into fellowship with the Gentiles there in Antioch and having a good time. Uh, They're sitting at the table together. He's eating their food, and, and they're fellowshipping together. But then, some of the stricter brothers from Jerusalem show up. Some of those guys who say, you know what, no, Christians really should be circumcised. Christians really should keep the law. Christians really should be kosher. And all of a sudden, when these guys show up, Peter changes course. He stops associating with the Gentile brothers. Maybe he was shamed by them, these stricter brothers who clucked their tongues and and they shook their heads, questioning Peter's spirituality. He didn't want to appear appear impious to these law-keeping brothers, so he stopped associating with his Gentile brothers and sisters altogether. And when Peter did that, some of the other Jewish believers started disassociating from the Gentiles. Even Barnabas started pulling away. But Paul, thank goodness, saw it for what it was. It was hypocrisy. Peter was fine hanging out with the Gentile believers, but as soon as the Jewish brothers showed up, he dropped the Gentiles like a hot potato in order to protect his reputation as a pious Jew. And Paul was not about to let him get away with that. In verse 11 he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter had fallen into legalism, probably for fear of what others might think of him. He backed away from full fellowship with Gentile Christians and started acting all pious and kosher as if his righteousness depended on it. And in this, his actions were actually racist. You see that? Because he's pulling away from the Gentile believers preferring to associate with those who are like him and and cutting off the people who were different from himself. Hey, look, if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to the best of us. Uh, Legalism is seductive. We can see that in the passage. Now, let me give you an example of just how seductive it can be from my own experience. So I grew up in a pretty conservative church environment where, you know, worship was always accompanied by piano and organ singing out of the hymnal in four-part harmony, and frankly, it was glorious. You know, when it was done right, it was amazing. Uh, But it wasn't all that demonstrative in that nobody raised their hands, nobody said amen, that was kind of frowned upon because in our church setting, if you did those kind of things, people suspected you were becoming a charismatic. You know, that was the big fear. If you raised your hands, you were drifting theologically. And so I was trained, you know, to keep my hands down and not to amen and just sing out of the hymnal, right? that That was what I was trained to do. Now, as I got away from that church experience and began having experience in other worship venues, I began to understand, and especially as I examined the scriptures and saw how the Psalms themselves encourage us to, to raise holy hands in worship, that, you know what, raising your hands isn't about your theology, it's about adoring the Lord and loving him and, and worshiping him from the heart. And so as the years went by, I gained greater and greater freedom. And so, you know, if I raise my hands in worship, it's because... I'm convinced that I've got permission in Christ to do that. Now, here's here's an interesting thing. I know that if I'm over here on a Sunday morning raising my hands in worship and I look over my shoulder and I were to see a certain Bible college professor or a a pastoral mentor who meant a great deal to me, I'd be like, whoa. (laughs) Don't want to give them the wrong idea. And I'd probably be feeling like, hey, everybody, put your hands down don't want them thinking we're the wrong kind of church. (laughs) You see, that's how seductive legalism can be. It can come back on you in a flash like that. And I think that's what Peter was experiencing here. If you've ever had liberty in Christ to do something, but you opted not to do it for fear of what some stricter brothers might think, then you know why Peter behaved the way he did here. It's incredibly easy to lapse into legalistic behavior. Legalism is seductive. Now, the second danger that Paul shows us about legalism is that legalism is not only seductive, legalism is divisive. Legalism is divisive. Look at verse 14, where he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What's he saying here? He's saying, by letting these strict brothers dictate your behavior, Peter, you're creating a division here in the church in Antioch. Before they came, Jews and Gentiles were all worshiping together and sitting together at the table and enjoying fellowship. And all of a sudden, these guys show up and Gentiles are being treated like second-class citizens. They were getting the message that, well, I guess if we want Peter's approval, if we want Peter's fellowship, then we better start acting like Jews. Now, in the next chapter, Paul's going to assert, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek. But for that little while in Antioch, all of a sudden there was... In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Gentile and Jew, and in Christ we've all been made one. But Peter momentarily got seduced, and the dividing wall went right up again between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. You see, wherever legalism takes hold, you'll often see these kinds of divisions. There will be an in-group that sets the rules, and an out-group that feels like they can never measure up. Instead of welcoming people of various ethnicities and races and backgrounds, the message is sent that those who truly please God will be like us. They'll do things our way. The essential message becomes conform to our standards instead of be conformed to the likeness of Christ. I saw this in the church of my earliest upbringing when I was a kid. I told you about the kind of very fundamentalist, legalistic church that I was raised in until about junior high. And uh, it was a church that had a lot of rules. So the message there was, believe Jesus as your Savior. And now that you trusted Christ, okay, here are the rules to keep. We don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go with them who do, we don't drink, we don't dance, we don't go to movies, we don't use traditional playing cards, and we don't do anything on Sunday except go to church and rest. And there are a whole bunch of other rules. Now, you notice right away that the rules that we were given went way beyond what the scriptures require. But those were the rules. If you want to be truly righteous, then you've got to keep these rules. And we looked around town, and we saw other churches that weren't quite so strict. And we thought, well, we're not quite so sure that those people are really even Christians at all. Right? Now, just across town was my mom's church of her earliest upbringing, that happened to be of uh, Dutch ethnicity. It was uh, from a denomination that was in part dedicated to preserving Dutch identity in the United States. So it was for Dutch immigrants. And if you went to that church, the message would be, trust Jesus as your savior, but then you gotta act Dutch. (laughs) And you better have a Dutch last name (laughs) because if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And and there was was this this barrier. So if anybody from any other kind of ethnicity or background came in, they were sent a very strong message. This is for Dutch people. This is for Dutch people. As a pastor, I realized the importance of being alert to such tendencies because it can happen even in solid Bible-believing churches. Legalism is not only seductive, it's divisive. If the message is sent that there are two classes of Christians in a church— Those who are like us and those who don't quite measure up, it's likely that some form of legalism has taken hold. Trust Jesus as your savior and then keep these rules. Trust Jesus as your savior and then act like us. Uh, Trust Jesus as your savior and maintain our group identity. Essentially, what legalism is hoping to do is is to make everybody behave right, to keep the law, to act righteously, to maintain the group's identity, But what all of that fails to realize is, thirdly, that legalism is impotent. Legalism is seductive, it's divisive, and it's impotent. It doesn't have power to do what it sets out to do. Uh, you, You can't make somebody righteous by handing them a bunch of law or expectations they have to keep. And so in verse 15, Paul continues to share what he said in rebuking Peter's hypocrisy, and he appeals to their common Jewishness, And how they would have looked at Gentiles in their pre Christian days. He says in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. That's how we used to look at Gentiles. As Jews, we believed ourselves to be superior to Gentiles who neither knew God's law nor kept it. But what did we discover, Peter? That in spite of all of our best efforts to keep the law, we were no more righteous than the Gentiles were because we couldn't keep the law ourselves. Because no one can keep the law sufficiently to be righteous before God. He continues in verse 16 to say, Yet in spite of what we used to think, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Some say that verse 16 is really the theme verse of the whole book of Galatians. And I think it very well could be. Because he says it three times over. That no one is justified, no one is made righteous by keeping the law. And he says it three times over, that we can only be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. He says it generally, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says it personally. of of himself and Peter, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then he states it as a universal principle because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law is impotent to make us right before God. It's powerless to accomplish what it sets out to do. I like the story that a pastor tells he must be an old guy like me because he, he says that uh, he was invited to a fitness club when fitness clubs were kind of a new thing back in the 70s. And he had this friend, Frank, who had a, a membership to this club and he could invite some other friends to, you know, in, entice them to join the club. And so he invited this pastor and the pastor went with Frank and, and he said, I walked into this room where they had all these machines I'd never seen before in my life you know, all, that were all supposed to, uh, you know, uh, work out different muscle groups. And, and they called it a circuit, he said. And then this big guy in a, in a too tight t-shirt with muscles, you know, kind of spilling out, uh, showed me how to work each machine on the circuit. And, and he had me, you know, do a little bit, a little demonstration of how to do it. And then we'd move on to the next one until we'd gone all the way through. He said, then the room filled up and guys took their places at each machine And and this uh, guy in the t-shirt shouts out, blows a whistle. He says, two minutes on each machine, ladies. He said, I'm not sure he said ladies, but that's what he meant. (laughs) And he blew his whistle. I started to pull down on a set of handlebars attached to some weights. Nothing. He said, I had just worked this machine a few minutes earlier. But this time, nothing happened. The weight I was trying to lift didn't budge an inch. I tried harder. Nothing the t-shirt guy yelled at me something like, come on, you overweight daisy. So I, I redoubled my efforts, but nothing happened. I thought my shoulder was going to separate, sweating like a coal miner. I gave up in shame. I looked down at this machine in defeat. At this point, Frank came out to help. He looked the thing over and showed me that something, someone had pulled the pin on the proper weight. I was trying to lift all the weights this machine had, something like 500 pounds. But that was it. I gave up. I walked out. Some things are just too hard. Some weights are just too heavy. And then he said, That's how the Old Testament law worked. That's how it still works. We think we can lift the weight of obeying God, that we can be really good. We try it a little and we succeed a little, but when the time comes for the sustained, heavy lifting of daily obedience, we can't budge the burden. The law is impotent. No one will be made righteous by trying to lift such an impossible burden. Paul is saying, you know this, Peter. We agreed on it. We shook on it. So why are you still trying to act as if your righteousness before God depends on you keeping kosher? It can't. Your legalistic hypocrisy is dangerous. It's seductive. It's divisive. It is impotent. And finally, it is misguided. It's misguided. You see, the legalist will say, well, you can't tell people they don't have to keep the law to be righteous. That will lead to lawlessness. Everyone will do what's right in their own eyes, no one will keep the rules. If you de-emphasize the law, godless living will result. If that's your version of Christianity, then Christ promotes sin. And Paul hotly denies this in verse 17 when he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He's saying, you know what, if some of us who trust in Christ to save us, Well, we just might sin from time to time. But that doesn't change the fact that Christ's death and resurrection has freed me from the guilt and grip of sin. If I sin as a believer, it doesn't mean that Jesus advocates that I go on sinning. It only shows that I haven't yet reached perfection in Christ. We've been declared righteous before God, and we're in the process of being made righteous before God. He's still at work in us. So that when we sin, it doesn't mean that Jesus endorses our sin. On the contrary, it's the legalist who's misguided. It's the legalist who can't escape sin. He says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying if I have come to Christ and then I go back to living according to the law in my own strength, all that I show again is that I still can't keep the law and that I'm in fact still a transgressor. It serves once again to show me how much I need Christ to do for me what I can't do for myself. What's necessary is that I die to the law, not continue to live by it. He says in verse 19, for through the law I died to sin so that I might live to God. The law shows me how far short I fall. The Ten Commandments, for instance, indict us all as sinners who are guilty before a holy God. If I am ever To be saved, ever to be righteous before God, I've got to give up any hope of trying to justify myself by keeping the law. Legalism is misguided when it claims that righteousness is obtained or perfected by me trying to keep the law. I've got to die to the idea that the law is the way I come to God so that I might come to God on God's own terms and come alive to God in Christ. The point is, that the essence of Christian living is not being conformed to the law, but being transformed by Christ. And so we come to this beautiful climactic verse of the passage where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I have I'm identified by faith with Jesus when he gave his life on the cross for me. When he died, my old self died with him. The me that was a slave to sin died with Jesus, died in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not only identified with Christ in his death, I'm identified with Christ in his resurrection. When he rose from the grave, I rose with him. I came alive to a new life. He now lives in me. And the motivating force of my life is no longer the old self that could never live up to the impossible expectation of the law. Rather, now I live by the power of Christ in me as his spirit transforms me from the inside out, enabling me to live as I've never lived before, a life of obedience that pleases the Lord. The life I live in the body is not a matter of striving to keep the rules, but of following Jesus, of loving him, trusting him, yielding to his control. He says, in the life I now live, in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, if Peter had kept that perspective, he never would have disrespected his Gentile brothers, would he? He, he needed Christ to instruct him how to live as a Jew instead of letting his Jewishness drive how he lived as a Christian. Just as I need to be instructed how I live by Christ, for instance, as, as a white man in respect to believers of other races and nationalities, rather than to allow my whiteness to limit how I live as a Christian and behave toward them. See, we don't need. Critical race theory to inform the practice of the church. We need Christ. If we're surrendered to Christ, we'll do right by one another. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. What matters now is not my old self, my pride, my heritage. What matters now is who I am in Christ. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and not just me, but people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation. I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I love the way Major Ian Thomas comments on this particular verse. He says, God sent us his son, not just to get you and me out of hell into heaven, but to get the God of heaven into you and me. Paul is saying here in Galatians 2.20, I am a redeemed sinner, and the risen Jesus has come to reinvade my personality so that he can serve with my hands, walk with my feet, speak with my lips, see with my eyes, hear with my ears, think with my mind, and love with my heart, so that to me, to live now is Christ. You know, that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that our righteousness as his followers must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who tried so hard to keep the law. Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. Our righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. The righteousness of the Pharisees fell short because they failed in their efforts to keep the law. But Jesus knew that his followers would undergo a transformation from the inside out, resulting in a level of obedience and and a quality of righteousness that not even the most devout Pharisee could attain in his own strength. Keeping the law won't get you there, but living in Jesus will. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If there were any other way, If obtaining or maintaining God's favor depended on me rather than on what Christ has done for me and wants to do in and through me, then Christ's death on the cross was a waste. Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could live a righteous enough life that that I could justify myself before God, then Jesus died for nothing. But I couldn't keep the law to earn my salvation. That's why Jesus had to die for my sin. And once in Christ, there's no point in continuing to live under the law. I've got something way better, something way more powerful. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The bottom line is only in Christ can one be made righteous. Only in Christ. Jesus loved me enough to die for my sins, but not only that, he goes on loving me by living out his life in me. Effective Christian living doesn't come by trying real hard to be good, but by trusting Christ to express his life in and through us. The focus should not be on our performance, but always on Christ, who gave himself for us in order to give his life to us so that he might live through us. The Christian life is about learning to lead my life as Jesus would live it if Jesus were to live his life as me. It's not asking Jesus to bless me as I try real hard to live for him. It's about yielding completely to him and saying, Lord, I can't, but you can. And the result is way, way better than attempting imperfectly to keep some daunting set of rules, the result is a life that looks more and more like Jesus himself a life lived for God's glory by the power of his spirit I I saw the difference in these two perspectives when my family left that legalistic church of my childhood and moved to another church when I was in junior high, and I've told you about this before, but it, it bears repeating So in the first church, the message was, trust Jesus and now keep the rules. And if you don't keep the rules satisfactorily to to our satisfaction, then we're going to shame you and let you know you're not doing it right. Well, some folks in that church took to shaming a family member of mine who's going through a tough time. And instead of coming alongside of her, they shamed her. And my parents said, this is crazy. And we need to look for another church. And and they they took us to this other church that was very grace-based, very... Bible-centered, where the message was not, all right, now that you're saved, here are the rules, but rather the message was, you trusted Christ as your Savior, great. Now let's work together, help each other, become more like Jesus. And let's look into the scriptures to see what pleases the Lord. And let's ask him you know, to help us by the power of his spirit to, to live out that life, the life of Jesus in us. Totally, radically different orientation that was not only refreshing, but it was life-changing for me. My prayer is that that will be the experience of everyone who enters these doors. Not, hey, welcome to the club. Now here are the rules to keep so you can be just like us. But rather, welcome to the family. Let's help each other grow in the grace of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and now lives in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace, for your undeserved favor in our lives, for the fact that you loved us while we were still sinners and gave your Son to die on the cross to pay for our sin so that we wouldn't be under the penalty of sin anymore and so that when Jesus came alive from the dead we could have new life with you in him Lord I pray for those who came in here today just burdened down and feeling like they could never measure up that, that, that they could never be a good Christian because they can't keep all the rules and they keep messing up Lord I pray that you would speak to that heart and help them understand that when they put their faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus himself takes his place in their life and wants to empower them to live a whole new way. Lord help them to understand that the secret to Christian living is not trying real hard to be good but by surrendering to you and trusting you to do in and through us what we can't do for ourselves. Lord. I pray that by the power of your spirit we as believers here at Bayside Chapel would look more and more and more like Jesus. That people would would look at us and and not see people who, who are strict rule keepers but see people who love Jesus and look an awful lot like him and act like him too. Lord that's our heart's desire. Protect us from from the legalism that can so easily invade our Christian walk. And help us to walk by faith, by grace, in the power of your spirit. To bring honor and glory to your son, in whose name we pray, amen.